Ooh, ooh, I wonder if you can arrow press blood. Welcome back to the ADR podcast, and uh, today I'm going to try something fairly new. I'm going to have uh, a guest on, maybe uh, make this into a weekly thing where I talk about a more current movie than uh, what I've been doing on the show, which is uh, delve back into the uh, weird stuff I usually watch. But uh, today I have Jeff Ruberg with me to talk about Guardians of the Galaxy. Hey, how's it going, Jeff? I am Groot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, crap. sorry, sorry. I had to do that. I, I thought I got Jeff. Oh, wrong number. Um, no, we are all Groot. Deep down, I believe. <laughs> I thought we said no spoilers. Ah, well, that's not a spoiler that you can get from the movie. You have to learn that we are all Groot. <laughs> uh, Jeff, are you into the Marvel Universe at all? The cinematic or comic book universes? So, so I've been following it since... I've been following the movies for the past year or two, I guess. Uh, I guess I saw the Iron Man movies when they came out. But aside from that, didn't see Thor when it came out. Uh and then in the past like year or so after following a bunch of different movie podcasts have been more interested in seeing each one that each one that has come out but the comic books no i never never got into the comic books yeah me neither so in terms of us being more of, on the cinematic side of the marvel universe what did you think of guardians of the galaxy in terms of you know they dropped 15 trillion new characters on us in two and a half hours <laughs> uh i mean it certainly was a lot of characters uh I mean, I, I think that's one of the best parts that it can that it was effectively able to set up all those characters. I think so too. I feel like they're uh, doing like setting this up as a new tangent to the Avengers. I really don't know how they're going to intersect them at some point. I hear Phase Two or Three will climax with something big like this, but I think it's interesting that they just dropped this on us uh, like a bunch of new characters here you go um whereas with the avengers especially with you know the individual movies we had years and hours and hours of runtime for us to get to know these characters and here we are with guardians of the galaxy completely tangential yet still under the marvel banner so i think that's uh really fascinating you brought up the characters i mean uh what do you say we get started with uh peter who is the first focus of the movie uh quite possibly the main focus of the movie okay i had a serious question about him the kid actor was his hair red Huh, I I don't even know. that. So that first scene was shot with a really, really weird filter. Um, young Peter, I have the Wikipedia page up here now. Um, <laughs> the most random question. Yeah, no, I I don't know. That was a weird opening to the movie, wasn't it? Yeah, I, I was not expecting that. But, I mean, it was really interesting how they set up, you know, like he is the, our grounding in the world. Yeah, um, he is our grounding in the world. But the thing is, he's taken away from earth you know almost immediately within five minutes and here we are i thought i wouldn't call it insensitive but i thought it was bizarre you know here's a marvel movie you're expecting you know fun and uh big exploding spaceships and funny raccoons and then boom punch in the gut here we are with a cancer death like wow okay (laughs) i mean it's interesting how he's like our grounding the world and then it just fast forwarded right away to you know you see him and then you think oh we're gonna see how he grows into this character is used to this cosmic side of the marvel universe and it just nope snap and then he's there (laughs) and i I think that's a theme with a bunch of these different characters that they are kind of at least what i expected they're like twists of what i expected yeah i get that i mean the fact that they end up coming together because they are the misfits we'll talk a lot about that more because i have a lot uh a lot of strong feelings about how they you know put those kinds of uh twists on these characters later in the movie but um 
Another hard-hitting question that I know is totally important, but how does Peter know all of this stuff about the music if he was, you know, taken away from Earth almost immediately? Does that mean that he, you know, loved that awesome playlist uh, volume one thing for years and knew everything about it? Or has he returned to Earth since to do the research that he shows later in the movie? I I, th- I think he totally had just seen the movies as a kid, right? Well, he mentioned the one movie, he mentioned Footloose. Oh, sorry. Is that that's not a spoiler? No, that's not a, too much of a spoiler. Uh, Footloose plays a little bit of a part in the later uh, parts of the movie. He just kind of brings up Footloose and dancing, and that's a fun <laughs> scene. But no, the movies, the music, the culture. Has he been back to Earth since? Because uh, it seems like everyone else he knows are uh, are human. I think what I've heard about the his backstory, at least in the comics, is that he does not like going back to Earth. Interesting. Doesn't like going back to Earth. Well, okay, so uh, we have Peter Quill. He is um, our introduction to the movie, our grounding in the Earth and in this world. And I really like how they opened up the movie after the really big punch in the gut where he's exploring this is much more of what we expect, you know? It's uh, him going around uh, finding this orb thing. But then the opening credits. You want to tell us what happened uh, during the opening credits, Jeff? (laughs) I don't know if I can do it justice. I don't think I can explain it. (laughs) It was great, though. He uh, puts on some fun 70s, 80s jam music and starts dancing as the credits roll. And what (laughs) do you think of the uh, music choices in this movie? Well, so I'm not familiar with most most of the music in the movie, actually. Yeah, me neither. The, I recognize, well, I mean, I recognize most of it, but the one song that actually, you know, Love Myself was, uh, I think we can discuss the movie, that most of the music is not really related to plot directly. No, no, not Uh, at all. So the one song I recognized and liked was Ziggy Stardust. Ooh, Uh, yes. But yeah, I mean, that opening scene, I think did a really good job. Like it set the tone for the movie. It set, it gave us interesting information about the character in addition to the goofiness. I don't really want to get into those details, but I mean, well, I mean, it's also the first couple minutes, but well, so, so it's like in the opening scene where we see him as a kid, uh, you see him talk about how he got into a fight with, uh, with other kids about defending, was it salamander? It was defending some kind of animal. Yeah. Some kind and, of thing. And then they flash forward to the future and then he's just kicking these animals like, I don't know, just for fun. Uh, so I thought that was a really interesting way to set up. Like he's kind of the same person that we saw in the flashback, but kind of not. Huh. I never thought about it like that. I don't know. I think the, um, well, first of all, establishing like the goofiness and the fun in the movie that you're going to have, that you're going to watch. Uh, I thought that was genius. Chris Pratt. I don't like Parks and Rec that much, but I've always liked him as an actor. Oh, Really? He's actually my he's my least favorite part of Parks and Rec, which I love, but I, I hate him the most in it. Really? Of like the two seasons I've watched, he was my favorite, except for like maybe Ron Swanson, but I think that's a given. Um, <laughs> and he did a fantastic job. I'm so glad he's like breaking out into these other things. I feel like he is the breakout role or the breakout uh, member of the Parks and Rec cast. But in uh, this, he does a fantastic job of uh, balancing that kind of fun Harrison Ford um, Han Solo style or even... Um, God, Nathan Fillion Firefly. Why can't I remember his name? Please help me. I'm losing so much nerd cred, but I can't, I can't uh, remember. Captain Mao. Yeah. I lost so much nerd cred Reynolds. right there. <laughs> um, but I feel like he's got that same kind of swagger, that same kind of, yo, what's up? I'm going to shoot you with this thing while being hilarious for the audience at home. Uh, and that worked really well for this because he's um, not only relatable in that way, we can, we as audience members on Earth can look at him and say, yeah, I would hang out with that guy. 
because he's the only one that isn't, you know, a tree or green skin <laughs> or you know, things like that. So we're on his side the whole time. And it, he makes it so easy for us because he's such a badass. Well, it's interesting because I don't he's not the only Han Solo. Like when I tried to. I, th- I thought of a lot of these characters, uh, the main cast as the Star Wars archetypes. Mm. And it's weird because uh, Chris Pratt or uh, what is it? Peter Quill mm-hmm. is he's like kind of luke but luke after he's after he's a jedi but also he doesn't care about being a jedi either and but he also is a bit of han solo but i mean uh rocket just totally han solo i thought and but han solo with a bit of craziness yeah he's so much more gung-ho than uh than you know han solo archetype and his chewy is a tree which i think that makes more sense in terms of uh han solo having someone not necessarily a belief beneath him but like a sidekick that he can kind of uh, bring around with him, boss around, kind of help him out with his thing and uh, take most of the credit for it. Um, that definitely makes sense. I I definitely see Chris Pratt as more of a Luke in this case because he's still trying to figure everything out because he was, you know, ripped away from Earth 26 years ago. Um, I did the really quick math when they said, like, flash forward 26 years or whatever. It was 2014. It was now uh, hmm. when they showed that, which I thought was really interesting. Uh, like, I didn't feel like they needed to place the time in this movie. Um <laughs> Well, it's gonna probably gonna come into play for future movies, obviously. That's true. I mean, the way that Marvel's structuring out this whole universe, uh, we, I guess we can talk about that a little bit later. But the way that they're doing this universe and having everything coincide with everything is just mind blowing, and no one's ever done this before. It's uh, crazy because it like it. It's weird because on the one hand, it's it's like it's mind blowing. It's awesome. They've, they're pulling it off. On the other hand, it seems natural. There's something about it that just like feels right, even though it's never been done before which I find really hard to explain. Yeah, they're they're doing things right. And I feel like this is like, uh, you know, Blair Witch Project being the first found footage movie. It just makes sense. You watch it and think, huh, why couldn't I have done this before? And the reason that you couldn't have done this before, hypothetical quote unquote <laughs> you, is you don't have all this IP and millions of dollars to make these movies that you're pretty sure are not going to fail the box office. You know, like they can make these movies with almost certainty that they will break even, that there will be sequels, that they can plot things out five or ten movies in advance to make things work uh, when you binge watch them in ten years and you have 24 solid hours of Marvel movies <laughs> to go through and they all make sense together. It's also crazy that they're not the... Not, not only are they comic characters, comic comic book stories, but they're the unpopular ones. You know, like, they've, they've already gone through the Spider-Man, X-Men, Batman... Well, Batman's different. Okay, Spider-Man, X-Men... <laughs> I guess Iron Man even wasn't that popular before. Yeah, these movies made you know, Captain America, Iron Man, and Thor uh, popular again. I think that's crazy. Yeah, um, so that was a tangent. Uh, Chris Pratt <laughs> as Peter Quill. Um, We've gotten through one character. One character, there we go. And then um, the like a few scenes after that is the introduction-a-thon of every single other character in the movie, uh, or at least in the... Uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, you know, quintet that uh, we follow throughout the movie. We have uh, Gamora, Groot, and um, and Rocket come in in one single scene, which I thought was ridiculous. Uh, what do you think of that scene? Well, Gamora is introduced separately, right? She's shown with the villains. Oh, right. Oh, my God. That's right. I completely forgot about that. I always uh, sectioned off the villains in a different you know, chunk of my mind. You see, that's what this movie is. It moves too fast. Uh, minor criticism I have. It moves too fast. I feel like uh, every scene is established, 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 established. Set piece. Established, established, established. Like, I completely forgot that she was introduced before that with the uh, villains and the incredibly cool blue shaved head woman. <laughs> have you been watching Doctor Who? 
I haven't. I need to get into that. That's uh, a rabbit hole I want to fall down. I was hoping you'd gotten up to season five yet before before seeing this because, yeah, she's she's a pretty cool companion. Oh, she's a companion. Yeah. Ooh. You know, going back to, um, you know, these are the unpopular guys, even in terms of Iron Man, Thor, and Captain America, I feel like this cast was comprised of, well, not B-movie people or, like, B-actors, but people you never really would have heard of that uh, they did fantastic job uh, casting this. You know, Chris Pratt, he, all he's done is a uh, is a sitcom, and then you have uh, Zoe Salanda, S- Saldana, Saldana. Mm. <laughs> I can't help you with that. You, yeah, you don't need to. Uh, she was in Pirates of the Caribbean and Star Trek and um, Avatar. And that's, you know, minor roles in all of them. Here she is, you know, starring in this proposed blockbuster. Uh, everyone else in the movie, I, I'm really glad that they're investing in these small, uh, not only small properties like Guardians of the Galaxy, comparatively small, but small actors and bring them to the forefront of this really bizarre, huge universe they're creating. It also baffles me in terms of what they must plan for contracts with these guys, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Wait, does that mean Bradley Cooper is going to have to be in a bunch more movies? His <laughs> schedule is ridiculous at this point. Uh, the impression I got that, of what I, what I heard about behind the scenes was he came in after everything was already animated and just added the voice. So I don't think there was that much of his time. Oh, uh, that, make, that makes sense. I, I did notice a few problems with lip syncing for Rocket. Hmm. And I guess we can talk about this a little bit more uh, later when we get to um, maybe like after we go through as much of the plot because we were going really slowly. <laughs> um, but, you know, the style and the way that this was all put together, I feel like, is uh, indicative of the way that James Gunn, uh, his love for these kind of B-movies and uh, those fun, not really give a crap about the production, but still have a ton of fun and put together an awesome product uh, kind of mentality when they made this movie which i think is awesome but so the one scene where they introduce everyone else in the guardians of the galaxy uh like main cast i thought it was a little bit of a mess the way that it was all like shot and edited together but of course uh bringing in rocket and groot like they had to come in at some point and this was um gamora's first big scene so i think it's interesting that like everyone's first big thing was in this one i guess five six minute scene where they're just pummeling each other in the middle of this uh planet and this uh big metropolis i actually really love that scene i mean i felt that it only introduced i mean we had seen gamora before but it introduced rocket and what is it? groot groot obviously groot and <laughs> we are all groot <laughs> and i feel like it gave enough time to each of them like seeing their their fighting style and I, I don't know i mean i think there are other parts of the movie that are much more haphazard i thought that this was Especially like her, uh, Gamora's initial introduction when she's she's introduced along with her. Uh, oh, what's her name? Like, uh, it's like Nebula. Is that her sister? I think so. yeah, Nebula. Yeah, you got it. Uh, oh, and, yeah. oh my God, yeah, Karen Gillan. She is a uh, companion. Sorry, continue. <laughs> so she's introduced <laughs> along with Nebula and Ronan, and they introduce the concept of Thanos, and then they are Thanos's children, but they're lent out to Ronan, and one of them isn't actually. I mean, like it, it's complicated family relations and four characters thrown at you once and i feel like as compared to this fighting this fight scene where it's just you know three characters and they're they're all having a brawl but i mean i thought they got enough time each of them that it wasn't confusing that's true uh if they were to give anything more time in this movie i wish it was the whole uh thanos gamora nebula trifecta of things that happened because that confused me the most um oh totally i mean gamora there's yeah i 
it's it's really bad how Gamora is not given the spotlight more. I, I've read a couple things since seeing the movie about how Gamora is really the center of the the connections, and she's mostly sidelined. That she'd be a more interesting protagonist, and I don't know if I entirely agree with that. I think I think grounding it to Earth is really important, and grounding it to the the eighties nostalgia is really important, but. It, it is sad how, how little time Gamora gets to develop. Yeah, I agree. Um, in, in my mind, it was so much easier to just lump her together as sidekick to uh, Chris Pratt it, because she had such a complicated past and I knew she had something to do with uh, Thanos, Thanos, Ronan. Um, I knew she had something to do with them, but it just confused me and I was like, okay, you two are hanging out together and uh, kissing and dancing. Go, go right ahead. That's fine <laughs> with me in my mind. Um, so after that scene, they established that um, the orb is the most important thing in this movie. I feel like that is the um, the MacGuffin. The uh, not necessarily MacGuffin because it is like the main thing they're trying to do. But I don't know. What do you think of that? Yeah, I mean, most of the Marvel movies have this conceit, right? Like something they're chasing for most of the movie. And I, I don't know. I mean, I feel like that wasn't something I noticed while watching it. You know, I, I've seen so many summaries in the movie that just describe it as a MacGuffin. It's just you know random plot device that doesn't have any meaning and I, I don't know I, I think it worked well I think it was complicated enough you know the they went through enough iterations of getting it losing it and I don't know what, what did you think about it yeah I agree they, they played it off well enough because um you're right they went through a bunch of uh, getting it losing it getting it losing it that it becomes less important but still like the driving force for them to stick together and still keep fighting uh for what they're trying to do and while they're in the prison, I feel like they established that um, it's like this is the thing all the other Marvel movies have to do. You know, they uh, have to or I guess at least the Avengers, because that's the only you know big ensemble piece they've done so far. But the fact is they have to come together somehow and they literally are confined to this jail and they have to become, you know, partners. They have to, you know, try to figure out a way to work together and a way to, um, you know, try to get out of the prison together and get this uh, orb. What, what was the orb called? Did it have like a name, uh, like the Allspark or whatever? I don't know. If, I can't remember if it had a name. Yeah, I can't remember either. Uh, let's see. Um, doo, doo, doo. It, uh, Wikipedia just calls it the orb or the artifact. Okay. So. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I think that as a... I really like the orb as a mechanism for getting them all to work together uh, without going into too much about how the team mechanics evolve over the course of the movie. I think it was a really... I felt like it was a really solid way to get them to all have reasons to work together. Yeah, that makes sense because they, um, the way that Rocket lines out the plan, okay, we need this, this, and this. And uh, once we get this, I can get this, and this, this, this. Uh, he has a plan almost immediately. And I think that's really interesting the way that, uh, you know, that is the germ of how they start to work together and how their uh, team dynamic starts to evolve over the course of the movie. And by the end, we can talk about this in the spoiler chunk of the show. Um, I really think their dynamic is something bizarre that I wish it wasn't. Uh, but in the prison, my favorite gag in the movie is, uh, okay, we need this, this, and this, and we need to get this thing last. And in the background, uh, what's Groot doing? Just grabbing it. <laughs> That's pretty great. He's like ripping the battery out of the wall. And I think it's awesome. what do you think of the uh, humor in the movie? So I, I really like the humor in general. There were there were a couple, there were two cheap shots in particular that I like had a bit of a sour aftertaste in my mouth about disabilities. But 
they were funny in the moment and then afterwards i was like eh, that's kind of punching down uh but aside from that i mean it was interspersed in moments that i didn't quite expect which was i mean the movie did kind of you know get serious at times it wasn't you know humor throughout mm-hmm. but i think they, it was sprinkled through enough of the movie that it worked really well yeah it worked in that you know this is supposed to be a light fun movie and while it is you know serious at points uh, we'll talk about that later there's a bunch of uh it's a movie set in space with a tree and a talking raccoon you have to laugh at some point i think the um some of the humor you're talking about like um that one gag i know you're talking about with the uh, guy with a prosthetic leg I feel like that was funny in that uh, it was edited really, really well because uh, in the middle of this action yeah. scene, uh, it cuts to that one sight gag like, huh, okay, the score stops and you, you get this pregnant pause between Chris Pratt and the guy with the leg. Um, it was funny, uh, but I do agree there was some, uh, it was in bad taste at some points, especially later when they revisit the joke. Um, some of the dialogue, I feel like they tried a little bit too hard to be funny. Uh, like when the... After you get the introduction of uh, of Drax, the Destroyer, who I think is awesome uh, with his really literal, sen- uh, the way he literally takes every single you know, phrase, uh, some of the stuff that he says after he goes on a rant about how he's not a princess or he mis- uh, misunderstands some metaphor, there was something that Gamora said. It was like, "Ugh, I'm surrounded by the biggest idiots in the galaxy. And when she said that, my jaw dropped. Like, wait, did you just say that? Do you think that we don't get that you think that? Like, I felt like they tried to be funny and in a very, oh, you finger waggle, uh, you're so stupid. Uh, that fell flat for me. I feel like they were trying huh. too hard to be funny there. I, I really like that line because it was, uh, I think it was actually, I'm going to die among the biggest idiots. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we, we do get the sense she already thinks that they are the biggest idiots, but I guess I found it funny in that She's like, this is how I'm going to die. This is how. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, I, I see your point though. Like there was, a, I think that was actually right. There, there's a scene right around there where there's a really cool, I don't want to get into this to spoiling, but there's a really cool um, basically thing they do as part of their plan. Mm-hmm. And it basically, like, as you're seeing it, there's a lot of wonder and you're like, whoa, that's what's happening. And then someone says, oh, so that you just did that? And it's like, okay, we got it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. When um, the thing happens, they said, wow, you just did this thing. Like, it was as if, uh, I I get what you mean in terms of spoilers. I try to make it a little bit less spoilery. Like, you see someone in a kitchen. They're putting stuff in an oven trying to make something for you. You don't know what. And then when they take out, like, an apple pie, you say, wow, you just made us a key lime pie or an apple pie. Like, I I get that. You don't need to say it again. Yeah. It worked. Uh, that was a really cool moment, but I do agree. Some of the dialogue was a little bit too on the nose, a little bit uh, trying too hard. Uh, Marvel knows its audience really well, and uh, they trust us enough to make however many. I think this is like the eighth or ninth movie they've done in this insane universe. They trust us enough, and I feel like they should trust us enough to say, wow, you can get the fact that Gamora thinks that she's among the biggest idiots in the galaxy. It's weird because they trust us with some other stuff. They trust us with introducing all these characters. And the, the, the shorthands they're taken that, I don't know, it's weird It's weird for things like that where it's like, okay, we have to have to get this in there for them to understand it. Right, right. So uh, they continue on out of the prison. They end up, um, is that where they get to nowhere? 
or they go somewhere else first. I think they go right there. So they go right to know where they're trying to sell the orb. And again, like the orb is the MacGuffin. I, I have to say, I, I really like the idea of nowhere. I knowing nothing about the comics, <laughs> like, so this is, I, I was trying to think of an example of this and I, you just reminded me of the example of there's basically this, the setting they go to is set up as being the head of an ancient celestial being. And just like being that in however many years has been mined for all of its resources and is now like a mining city. And I thought that like it's such an expansive universe that you don't need to know everything about. Like it's, there's so much set up that is not fully explained. And I mean, there, there are all these avenues for future movies to go, but it also just feels more real because of that. Right. I don't, I've heard complaints that the movie is too, it's too confined that it feels like you're just in these like a couple of different set pieces and it doesn't really feel like a real world. So I don't know. I, I agree with you. I feel like uh, it is so expansive and there's so much to get uh, in terms of the way that they established this universe. I wish that they did it a little bit better. So it feels a bit more accessible because I do understand the criticism that it's very confined. It's very difficult to understand everything. So they highlight a few small things like they spend a huge chunk of the movie in nowhere. They spend a huge chunk of the movie in the prison so there's a lot of places they go, but when you spend so much time in one place, I can understand that it feels confined and uh, really kind of impossible to you know, break out of and understand there's other movies out there. I feel like more than any other movie in a while, this has been compared to Star Wars. Oh, totally. I mean, my understand. I mean, I just made up this assumption, but I totally assumed that the comic book was based off Star Wars. I don't know. I never thought about that. I mean, I'm sure, you know, we live in a post-Star Wars world. It's one of those things that will affect almost every movie that comes after it, especially in this genre. But yeah, this movie especially felt like Star Wars because this is as original IP as uh, we'll get into a theater nowadays with this kind of sci-fi genre twist on it. And so this is the first time a lot of these people are seeing uh, a lot of these properties and a lot of these characters. So they have to establish it really well. And I've talked about on a previous episode where I talk about Star Wars, Star Wars has my favorite pacing and establishing um, first act or first movie, I guess, in any movie ever. It's got, um, you're introduced to this whole new uh, world, whole new universe. And all you need to know is that there's the rebels and the empire. And I think it's brilliant that that's all you need to know. And then as the movies go on, they unfold more and unfold more and unfold more. They talk about the Jedis. They talk about the Sith. They talk about so much more. But in the first movie is that little germ where they say, at the root of this is this conflict. That's all you need to know. Go hang out with Luke Skywalker. And in this movie, they introduce no Ronin, Thanos, uh, Ronin and Thanos, and that's it. Uh, I wish they did a little bit more in terms of the world building that Star Wars does so well. So you think that they they didn't introduce enough or they introduced too much too fast? I feel like they introduced too much too fast. Okay. Yeah, I can see that. I, I think though it's, it's a different world now. Like, I mean, these movies aren't in a vacuum like Star Wars was, you know, this is one of 10 Marvel movies of the past, however many years, six years or whatever. And eight years. And anyway, and you know, like there's information about these characters you can look up that like, I mean, it's not in the same canon, I guess, but like, if you're curious about this what thing is, you can look it up and people, these movies are probably made to be seen, you know, binge with other movies. And I, I do see a point that like Star Wars builds up, I emphasize it really, Star Wars builds up this 
this mythology from scratch. And that's not what this movie is doing. So I can kind of forgive it for that. At the same time, uh, this is part of uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe. I have the list up here. It's 10, uh, the 10th movie. So this is uh, you know, all that we're getting for the next year and then Avengers comes out. But there was a point where you're watching this and you kind of forget about Iron Man and Thor and uh, Captain America because it's still under the Marvel banner. And I can imagine in the future there's going to be a big tie-in between the Avengers and uh, and the Guardians of the Galaxy. But in this case, you really forget about that. And the only other mention we get of, I think, any of this in any of the other Marvel movies, I've seen most of them, but not all of them, is uh, Thanos at the end of the Avengers. Uh, spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> that's, not, that's not really related to the movie at all itself. Yeah. And there is, have you seen Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D.? No, not yet. That's another thing. They put in a TV show in the middle of this universe. Like, oh. <laughs> I really love that idea. I don't think the execution was really good at all. It's, there, are, there are a couple good moments, and it gets better near the end. But, I mean, the idea of having a TV show that ties in, I think, is great. And so so it's not confirmed that there are Kree in S.H.I.E.L.D., but there are theories that things that have been alluded to in S.H.I.E.L.D. are Kree-related. Hmm, Interesting. I feel like that has to do with the fandom for this uh, this whole universe because, you know, if if they had taken the Marvel banner off of Guardians of the Galaxy, I feel like it would have been pretty much the same movie. Um, if there's Kree stuff in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., then as someone who's coming to Guardians of the Galaxy not knowing anything else, you're not going to care. So I think it's interesting, um, independent of the rest of the universe, they could have done a much better job of establishing this completely tangential world. I feel like the rush is part of the fun. It's just, you get swept up in it. But it does feel, I mean, the villains are very one note. Mm. Uh, I mean, they're basically, I don't think it's too spoiling to say there are two layers of villains. And one of them is one note. At least it's, an, it's, at least it's a believable note. The upper layer, just kind of laughably evil. <laughs> and, yeah, do you want to talk about um, Ronan for a second? And uh, like, what did you think of him as a villain and the way that he kind of uh, had his presence in the world? Because he was famous. Like, everyone knew who Ronan was. He went around ravaging people and uh, um, Drax... That's his name, right? Uh, here we go. Batista? Uh, no. No, Drax. Um, yeah, but uh, Dave Batista. He um, His whole hook throughout the movie is that he wants revenge on Ronan for killing his family. And, you know, he's famous. He, everyone knows him, and everyone knows that uh, Gamora and Nebula are involved with him. So they hate they hate Gamora and Nebula. Um, what did you think of him as a villain in terms of his presence? I mean, I liked that... I did like how everyone... He was so famous in the world. You know, like, we really learned to fear him just by seeing everyone else's reactions. And I kind of wish they'd gone, you know, all the way with that you know, maybe not shown us his face for a while. And then, cause he, it's kind of like he's shown and then people keep talking about him and then we see him again later. It doesn't feel quite as threatening as if it had been built up from scratch with him just being a threat in the consciousness. Yeah, that is really like, I feel like it could maybe could have been better if they hadn't shown his face at all. Uh, that I didn't even think about that. That's kind of interesting. I mean, they built him up pretty well. His introduction's kind of cool where he's, uh, you know, I think his introduction in the movie is him like smashing someone in the face with a hammer for doing something. Oh stupid. yeah, that was great. But it was weird because it was right after they showed him like getting dressed or being dressed. I didn't understand the point of like I don't know why we couldn't have just seen him dressed. Like I don't. 
maybe there's some comic book significance to like some ritual he does to get dressed or you know like it showed us what because he's the only Cree we see in the movie I think yeah that that's interesting I mean I feel like in terms of uh, Ronan, they took a page out of Ferris Bueller and established a character by showing his morning routine. And maybe they just had to show, you know, he kills someone as a part of his morning routine. Uh, That's a pretty great routine. Oh, yeah. Bring me in the next one. It's a little bit of stress reliever. Yeah, you have your coffee, you have your cereal, you uh, kill someone. I'm sure it would really help your productivity throughout the day. Someone get Merlin Mann on this. <laughs> they did emphasize the the blood coming out of him. So, I mean, that's, you know, an elaborate coffee you make ritual. Ooh, ooh, I wonder if you can air press blood. Uh, do you want to get into spoiler territory? Sure. So uh, this is your final warning for uh, ADR listeners. We are going to spoil the back half of uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, get into a bit more detail. If you have seen the movie and want to listen, uh, feel free to continue uh, on listening. Uh, for those of you that have not and don't, uh, come back tomorrow. I'll have some uh, more stuff available for you. Thanks again for listening and uh, see you later. So for those of you that stayed, uh, thanks for uh, hanging out. So at this point, we'll uh, talk about what happens after Nowhere. And um, so they try selling the orb. And at at this point that we understand what the orb really is. You want to talk about that, Jeff? I, it's a thing. It's, it's, a, it's a bigger MacGuffin. It's a MacGuffin for the whole Marvel Cinematic Universe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's kind of there. But what it, it blows everyone up. Like it destroys yeah, everything on Nowhere. And you see, oh, my God, wait this is what's going to be happening. Uh, that's why the stakes are so high at this point. And um, I love the shift in character uh, that everyone else there uh, does. Rocket still wants to sell. Uh, Peter and um, Peter and Gamora are so much more gung-ho about making sure it's in the right hands. Uh, but then at that point, Drax ha- uh, calls Thanos over, or not Thanos, uh, calls Ronan over and you know, challenges him. And it's his pride that brings the group down because he steals the orb. Yeah. So have you seen Thor 2? I Oh, no, I haven't. That's like the one Marvel movie I haven't <laughs> seen. It's like Iron Man 3, Thor 2, and uh, Captain America 2 are the ones I haven't seen. So I don't think it's a spoiling Thor 2 itself, but I want to tell you what happens in the ending credits. It's not really about the Thor movie itself. It's about the the universe itself. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, yeah. So if you really care about the ending credits to Thor 2, then... Don't listen for 30 seconds. Yeah, just push um, your fast forward 30 <laughs> seconds button now. So at that point, the collector has two Infinity Gems. Mm-hmm. He They set up in the credits that he gets one from Thor 2. And I forget how he's supposed to have one before that. Uh, don't take this evidence. Like, Look this up. I, I don't remember exactly. <laughs> but I'm pretty sure he's supposed to have two at that point. So I was surprised that he didn't end up with that one. You know, I thought that where they were heading with it was that he was going to get, you know, he was going to be the, the guy that had all of them at some point. I guess they could still go in that direction. Like it's unclear where it ends up. Like it's pretty clear where it ends up in the end of the movie, but it could shift hands more. Right. That's true. I mean, they're going to definitely expand on, I'm pretty sure all of this uh, in terms of what they're going to do in future movies. But when it comes to things like uh, the collector, the minor characters that don't really do much right now, but they do so much more later, hopefully that's going to be interesting to see how Marvel takes that and plays it out over the next, I don't know, 10 years. Are they planning these things out? <laughs> I think, I think they planned it for 20 years. Oh my god! Uh, at that point, they're gonna like need to recast these people because they'll be. Like, the thing about uh, I'm just thinking about Back to the Future. When Back to the Future was made, it was like the 30 years away is this crazy future where we have hoverboards and 3D billboards and all this crazy technology. And now it's like 
they're planning movies for 20 years from now. Like, it's, I don't know. Oh, my God. I didn't even think about that. Oh, that's one of those, like, oh, we're closer to the Vietnam War than we are to blank. Like, that's one of those things. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of scary. That's bizarre. Yeah, it is really scary. I mean, the way that the universe is going at this point, I don't know how much more they can take it because I feel like the main purpose of having uh, this whole unified universe is to have these giant climaxes like the Avengers, like, I guess, Guardians of the Galaxy 2, whenever they all mash up. Like, I feel like that is the main, uh, like, draw for having everything intersect so that they could all come together in one big series finale-style event movie like the Avengers was. Right. It's weird because, like, once you have that many things, it starts to feel like a TV series. Like, you know, every t- every episode of a TV series doesn't, you know, have this big climactic showdown. But every movie in the Marvel Cinematic Universe does. And that's that's really strange. Like, are we not going to be fatigued after five, after five more years of, you know, getting three major climaxes in the same universe every year? I don't know. Yeah, I I don't know how that's going to work. I've heard that Star Wars is going to do something similar because the way that they're doing, like, the standalone movies, official episode movie uh, back and forth every year, that's going to be interesting to see how they do the same kind of universe tie-in uh, that... Marvel seems to have been doing. Uh, I forget where I read this. It was like a random offhand tweet or like quoting an article or something. But someone said, watch out because uh, Star Wars and Disney are going to reinvent the way that you see uh, multiverses and multi-movie spans. Hmm. That'd be crazy. I mean, that means that Disney owns both of them. Like that'd be kind of crazy for Disney to be at the head of two crazy different cinematic universes. Speaking of uh, running or Disney owning everything, let's skip ahead to the very end for a second and talk about the fact that they were able to throw in a George Lucas um, uh, thing at the very end with Howard the Duck. Okay, so did you know about Howard the Duck? I knew about Howard the Duck. I haven't seen the movie, but I know of Howard the Duck. So I know nothing. (laughs) (laughs) I know that it was a ridiculous scene. It was so ridiculous. Like, I, I guess that's just Disney flexing their uh, rights muscles. Hey, look what we can do. We can make this random thing happen. That had to have been James Gunn's idea to throw that in because uh, he got his start uh, writing movies for Troma. Like, he has to have been in that world of B movies and that uh, insane, you know, fun, wacky thing that. Um, that Guardians of the Galaxy kind of embodies. And I feel like uh, Howard the Duck was the perfect duck-shaped cherry on top of this movie <laughs> that's all about, you know, fun, bam-bam music that doesn't make sense but still really funny. Um, spaceships flying around, really witty, stupid lines. Uh, I-, I love that. The style for this movie was perfect. And I feel like uh, Howard the Duck at the very end was a really bizarre way of kind of, you know, dotting your I's and crossing your T's. Uh, yes, this is a fun, wacky movie that doesn't take itself too seriously, but takes itself seriously enough to put out a really kick-ass movie. I think the the thing that I considered the cherry on top was the Groot dancing. <laughs> but I, th- I think the Howard the Duck, having no knowledge of it, was like a bit too many cherries. But <laughs> the Groot dancing was perfect. That that was perfect. Another post-credit scene where uh, after Groot dies, uh, he grows back. And I was so upset that Groot had died or had been blown up. And then here he is. Oh, he's, yay, he's growing back, Groot. And so, so did you, so I had, 
in lead up to this movie, I guess I like read things about Guardians of the Galaxy, like heard people talk about it, and I knew that Groot's defining characteristic was that if he has any part of him that's detached, it'll grow back. Which confuses me because like, can't you like split up into like ten different pieces and then grow ten different Groots? But whatever. (laughs) And but so I like they show a scene where he like takes off a piece of his like you know takes off a leaf or something and puts it somewhere, and it's like you know I was like okay, so he's gonna die and he's gonna come back and it's gonna be surprising. And I was surprised the movie didn't show that. Like, you know, they showed him dying and they showed him in a, in a pot and they didn't explain. Huh. I thought that was like, it was a rare instance of like not trying to handhold the viewer through it. Yeah, especially for a movie where they say things like, wow, you turned off the gravity and now we're floating out. Like, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Uh, n- now we can talk about that. It's like <laughs> the way that they uh, kind of describe Groot growing back or not even describe, just show it. Are there little Grootlings hanging out there on the planet that are all going to spring up individually because he left every single shard of himself in the middle of the uh, thing? See, I don't, I don't, I don't know if it's an effective use of, of like, you know, letting the viewer figure it out because we could think that it's a totally different character, right? Like we could think that Rocket Raccoon went and got a different Groot. There's nothing to really indicate that it is the same character, unless you know the backstory. Right, that makes sense. And that was something I was thinking about. Like, who knows? Maybe this isn't the same Groot. As he was growing and dancing at the very end, I was wondering if that was something like a different Groot, like a different uh, brain within the Groot. Because I wouldn't have imagined you know, normal Groot dancing. Yeah, exactly. I would have imagined him much more stoic and much more uh, you know, serious and proclaiming that he is Groot. Uh, the way that he was dancing, I thought, wait, is that actually Groot? Or is it just a little, like, another tree person? Like, they didn't explain that at all. The one other thing, major spoiler thing I want to talk about was the way that they... Another example of extreme, extreme hand-holding. They uh, really play up the fact that they're friends a little bit too hard. So so you think that was too far? I think it was way too far at times. There were points where they were like, uh, yes, I'd rather um, die by my friends than live alone. And they say friends a billion times. And I feel like, uh, like no one ever actually says, you know, friend in a way like you are my friend like they do in this movie. I felt like, so I think the, the idea of them being friends is earned. You know, like I thought that, I think I alluded to this before that the, MacGuffin of them having to chase this orb together, you know, I actually felt like it was really believable that they would have to be this group for a certain amount of time, aside from uh, Drax, who, you know, is tagging along to get revenge on someone else. But, right. And then at the point where, like, it isn't about the orb anymore, it actually makes sense they spent enough time together that that they would be a unit. But yeah, it wouldn't make sense for them to be like, we're best friends and let's hug. Like, Although I really did like how they had that emotional or like, trying to emotional scene of them all like declaring their friendship and then rocket stands up and is like great we're standing up in a circle (laughs) i thought that was good um that was funny i mean rocket was funny the entire movie and the way that he did that was you know pretty perfect and indicative of his character uh but the thing is the way that um you know peter quill gave a uh uh, community style speech saying this is why we should be friends and this is why we should you know be <laughs> doing this thing i thought that was a little bit too far community always does it for comedic effect but if they tried to spin it spin it off as serious like uh guardians of the galaxy did i was just i wasn't having it i thought it was interesting and especially with the very end where they all hold hands as the um 
as the orb is doing its orby destructive things. Uh, mm-hmm. They're all holding hands, and I feel like they just saw Toy Story 3 and decided, let's do that. <laughs> um, minor spoilers for story, uh, Toy Story 3. But the thing is, they did that, and it was like a very, very painfully obvious uh, way of showing that they were all friends and companions and that they were willing to die for each other. And, and those, those friends we've had, those were, that was three movies of build up of their relationships. Yeah, and I already, we talked about this earlier, I feel like uh, this movie moved too fast. So I don't know if they were justified in showing that so early on in this cinematic universe. Especially uh, there was one moment in the prison where they all burst into that uh, tower where they were eventually going to fly off. And the camera did this little perfect frame of all five of them in a perfect superhero pose. (laughs) And the music did a little bit of a swell when you saw it. And I thought that was an interesting little subtle hint that they would get to this point. And I thought... I had the same feeling uh, as when they say the title of the movie in casual conversation. Like, oh, this is the Guardians of the Galaxy. These are the Guardians of the Galaxy that you paid 15 bucks to see. Um, very early on in their friendship, very early on in their you know group, their uh, unit thing, I still thought it was really, really heavy-handed, especially as the movie went on and uh, they ended with some bizarre friendship, quote-unquote, moments. Um what did you think of that? You don't think it was that heavy-handed? So I, I think I just have a problem. Like I think I, I analyzed Digimon, which is a show all about friendship. So I think when I, I just filter out statements and like speeches about friendship, just like okay, well, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it's maybe blind to that because I mean, like you mentioned now, I'm like yeah, they did talk about that quite a lot. And like when I think about their relationships now, I don't think of them as being great friends. Right, like I think of them as like wanting to work together, but like, and you know, being willing to die for each other at the purpose of saving themselves from dying to other things, but not because they like want to die together. You know, like it's. I, I think it really did feel forced in retrospect, and I don't. I mean, so I I recently read uh, Film Crit Hulk's essay from a couple i can't remember when this was from actually i think it might have been a couple years ago about no no because it was was talking about looper so maybe it was a year or two ago uh and it was talking about loopholes or or plot holes and and how if you don't think about it while you're watching the movie that like that's not actually a plot hole if it didn't take you out of the experience then like the, the first time experience is the thing that really matters it's the emotional connection you make so if you come back to it later and you're like oh i thought about some more it doesn't really make sense that that really doesn't count as a plot hole Mm-hmm. And that's how I feel about this personally. That like, I want to think about it, yeah, they really weren't good friends, but they said they were a lot. But <laughs> but yeah, I could that could be I could see that would be totally jarring to someone who's less used to people talking about friendship all the time. That's true. You know, coming from something like Digimon or Pokemon, those wonderful things uh, that I loved when I was a kid. I haven't watched uh, in years. Dear God, I'm so jealous of you and your podcast. Um, I need to get back into that. But you know, they're going to talk about friendship a lot. That feels like such a core element to that show whereas in this case i feel like it was so forced on the other side of it i come from a uh fandom uh have you ever seen the room uh so i have not seen it i've seen sections parts of it but i haven't seen it all the way through i I really need to those highlights on youtube where they're like the worst parts of the room um so there's actually there's there's a scene that i've seen i really want to see the whole movie to see where it's set because i think it's actually set near me in san francisco there's at least one shot on a on a balcony that i'm like i can see my neighborhood 
the movie is set in San Francisco. Everything's shot in San Francisco. We'll talk about this post-show. I'm probably going to have to cut all this out. <laughs> Sorry. No, no, it's fine. Um, I come from, uh, in terms of the room, they um, there's a point where you know they always say um, that, oh, Johnny's my best friend. And the audience yells out, that's one. Johnny's my best friend. Two. Five minutes later, they say it again. Three. Like, they, we point it out all the time. And uh, it feels so jarring, just like it does in the room, uh, like in Guardians of the Galaxy, where they um, really decide to proclaim that. But I feel like in terms of plot, they do a very good job of uh, resetting their um, their motivations after uh, Ronan gets the orb. Uh, Rocket wants the orb back to sell it. Um Drax is still trying to uh, destroy him, but then there's the shift in uh, Chris Pratt and Gamora where they say, no, we need to get this back for other reasons and for like the good of the galaxy, because if he gets onto a planet, onto the surface, he can destroy the whole thing. Um, I thought that was really well done, but the way that they kind of presented it and shoved it down our throats, like we need to be friends to do this. That was, I felt that that was way, way, way too forced. Um, Especially when, you know, we talked about them holding hands and trying to prevent themselves from doing the thing. It's like, uh, that was a little bit too heavy-handed. And that final uh, battle sequence, very Avengers-like, very, you know, big, epic, uh, cutting back and forth between three or four different concurrent battles for this one thing. I particularly loved the um, spaceship wall they set up. Oh, yeah, I love that. That was so, so cool, especially because you can uh, zoom in on one or two of them and see that they're actually piloted by people. So I'd like to imagine, like, uh, the last scenes in Lord of the Rings where everyone's rallying up against Sauron. And um, he, same kind of thing. They're rallying up with their uh, spaceships against this one giant spaceship. And I thought it was a wonderful, wonderful moment. Yeah, I mean, part of me in the back of my head was like, well, these spaceships are just going into, a like, a static position. They don't, they're not really moving. They're not really being piloted so couldn't they be piloted by drones but i mean the point you're supposed to get from that is this, this wall of people that's protecting protecting the city from him and yeah i mean i i think that was a point i was thinking too much about plot because i mean the imagery of them defending the city was really good yeah it was um that was cool this is a very visual movie so in terms of uh you know the stuff that they do for the camera i thought it was brilliant um especially in that moment but you know thinking about the logistics of that this is another one of those movies where things kind of start to fall apart where you start to think about uh wait what does that orb actually do why is that there no 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 don't worry about that just know that these five guys need to get it yeah what did you think about the action scenes i'm not a big fan of uh big action set pieces um like i think Die Hard is one of my least favorite movies uh, on principle. I'm sure it's really well made, but it's just like, oh, this again. Uh, Much to my friend's dismay because they love those kinds of movies. Um, But in terms of the Marvel movies, Guardians of the Galaxy in particular, I think they do a very good job of making them A, mean something, and B, you know, very entertaining because there's so much going on, there's so much you need to keep track of. In terms of Guardians of the Galaxy's uh, you know, editing style, there was some points where I couldn't follow what was happening, uh, most particularly in the uh, opening big brawl where they introduced Groot and Rocket. Uh, I thought the editing that was kind of atrocious. As cool as the scene was in the choreography and the acting, I felt like I couldn't keep track of what was going on. Uh, they did a pretty good job of making it coherent throughout the rest of the movie, but at the same time, it's just meh. Yeah, I felt like it was coherent for most of the movie. The only part that I really had major gripes with was the like advancing on the giant enemy ship, and I didn't I had no sense of progress. It just was like 
ships flying around, more ships flying around, more ships flying around. Like I had no sense of like, are they close? Are they about to land? Have they, <laughs> they've been doing this for like 10 minutes. Like, <laughs> is anything happening? Like, it's just like things flying around. And it looks kind of cool, but it doesn't mean anything. And I don't know. I think even like Avengers gets a lot of praise for, you know, doing action well in that final Manhattan set piece. And I, I really didn't, I thought there was too much going on during that too. Yeah, I get that. And especially with the false endings, um, not even endings, just like false um, like resets of the scene. So they bring down the whole ship. It's awesome. I was so happy that it was like, yay, finally. And then Groot saves them, which is wonderful. And then Rocket has that wonderful turn where he uh, you know, gets really, really upset, which I thought was brilliant. Um, but, you know, they crash the ship and everyone's like, yay, everything's awesome. Then Ronin walks out like, oh, God. Um, in less of a, oh no, the villain's still alive, and in a, oh god, there's more to this movie because we just watched a half hour of people blowing stuff up. Yeah, I, I was not, like, a, a showdown with Ronin was not interesting to me. I, I'm actually pretty intrigued for a showdown with, a showdown with Yandu. What was Yandu his name? The, the guy who was... Star-Lord's, like, Ravager boss. Yes, yes. I feel like they set him up for uh, the villain for Guardians 2. Yeah, and, you know, like, they... He was kind of just obnoxious throughout the whole movie, and I, you know, wanted to completely disregard him, and then he uses his weird whistling needle thing, and it's just so effective that... I could see that A, being really cool, or B, just, like, you know, being deflected and dealt with in one blow or something. Right, right. Um, It could have gone either way, and I'm glad that... I think... I'm pretty positive they're setting him up for the uh, second movie villain. Um, I have to say my f- single favorite action moment in the movie was um, when he's hanging out in the field and uh, people come up to him like, stop, you have to do this thing. And then in one fell swoop, the giant magic whistly arrow kills all of them. Yeah, That was my single favorite moment, like action moment in the movie. Um they need to set him up for the uh, second movie. I also saw the um, switching out of the orb cases a mile away. Oh yeah, there was no like, I don't know that that was I was I was I was hoping they didn't do that. You know, like I was like this is too expected, but I don't know. Oh well, I, I, it was hard to read if his uh, Yondu's reaction was, I'm really ma-. like, was he laughing because he was like, I'm gonna kill this guy, or was he laughing because he was like. I got a new thing for my dashboard. I'm happy. <laughs> and that was a good moment. I like that um, he just kind of laughs instead of going, you know, Quill! as the camera zooms <laughs> out above him. Um, I'm glad that, you know, they give him a little bit more character. And again, they could have given every character that kind of, uh, you know, special treatment. Maybe not every character, but at least in this case, they're admitting, okay, we're going to build this up over another movie or two. And then there's going to be a big final showdown with Yondu. Uh, I really liked that. But at the same time, you know, he was such a weird stepping stone in this movie that I feel like they could have just held him off and introduced him in five minutes in the next movie. Um, he was a good guy. A good guy. He was a good character. But, um, yeah, I'm not entirely sure if I agree with the way that they treated him, like, towards the end of the movie. Yeah. Wow. Jeff, thank you so much for uh, coming on to ADR to do this uh, so last minute. Um, Thanks for having me on. Yeah, definitely. Um I'll uh, talk to you guys. Thank you so much for listening. I'll talk to you guys tomorrow with uh, French New Wave movies. And in the meantime, uh, check out Jeff's podcast. You want to talk a little bit more about your show? So I run a podcast called Podigious about a 90s cartoon called Digimon, (laughs) Uh, overshadowed by Pokemon. But 
yeah, it's a kid's cartoon that has a surprising amount of depth, but not really. And so it's half us reflecting on our childhood and half looking into this old thing and analyzing it, reading too much into it, that kind of stuff. So if you ever watch the show as a kid, you should check it out. I really like the uh, nostalgia factor you throw into the show. That's really, really cool. Thank you so much for listening to ADR, and uh, I'll see you guys tomorrow. Sorry, you can probably hear my cat in the background. No, I, I, I'm <laughs> a big fan of the cat in the background. <laughs> <laughs> Part of the problem being on the floor is that I'm closer to him when he meows.